Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. It's great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show. You know, our mission is to serve you with knowledge so you're empowered to make good financial decisions in your life. And I hope one of those decisions you've made is to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening or on YouTube. Another thing, when we go to buy or sell a home, how do we decide what real estate agent to hire? It's more important than you might imagine. I want to tell you the mistakes that we often make and what you should do to get the better side or get a better deal on the transaction. And today, car prices, for the first time for new vehicle prices in a long while, dropped. Most recent reporting, they dropped 6%, $3,000. This is good news that economists could have predicted, but they weren't, that the supply of vehicles available was going up. And so it changes the rules of the game a bit for you buying a vehicle, especially a new one. And I want to talk about that later. So think about it. This podcast, we're talking about the two largest expenses in people's lives, where you live and what you drive. So we're starting with the live part. I want to tell you there was a study done recently, the National Bureau of Economic Research did a study of how much or how little difference does it make what real estate agent you have as a buyer or a seller. And one of the things pointed out in a Business Journal's article based on this research is that most people who hire a real estate agent to represent them either as a buyer or a seller interview how many agents before they hire one. If you guess the answer is one agent, you guessed right. And that's the wrong answer, by the way. Overwhelmingly, when we are looking to hire someone to represent us in either selling the largest cost we've ever had in our lives, the house we've lived in that we're now selling, or the largest cost we'll have in our lives, the house we're buying, that most of us only talk to one agent. Now, what's most? Three quarters. Three quarters of people talk to one agent and say, okay, you seem like you'd be great, and hire that one person. Big mistake. Big mistake. So what would be a good number? All right, let's talk this through as a seller or a buyer. If you have an idea of what general neighborhoods you want to live in, or you are a seller and you're looking for an agent to represent you on selling your home, you want what are called 
farmers. Those are the experienced agents who sell in the collection of neighborhoods in which you're looking to buy a home or in which the home you own is in. Because if you drive around and you look at agent signs, you will see the same two, three, or four names again and again and again. Because they're the farmers. They're the ones who know that neighborhood. When I lived in a particular place, I used to be with an agent representing me when I lived in that area who she knew driving down a street, she'd say, oh yeah, that's, that's a four bedroom, two and a half bath. The primary bedroom's on the main. I mean, they, the agents that farm a particular area representing both buyers and sellers, they know those houses. They know relative fair market value. They know the problems with a the house. They know the selling features of a house. They know them. If you hire someone, and I know, I know, I know. How are you supposed to get experience when I say? But if you hire an inexperienced agent who's representing you, either buying or selling the biggest expense in your life, and they're brand new at it, they may be enthusiastic and energetic and all that, they're likely not going to know enough, and they're not going to have the contacts. You know, the agents who farm an area, one of them may have a buyer they're shopping around for houses, and another of those farmers may have the listing. And those agents know each other well enough, they can call and talk about that house and try to get that deal done at the best price for buyer and seller. And so when you have an inexperienced person and somebody offers too much for a house, they may not qualify for the loan and the deal falls through and the sellers ended up with a house pulled off the market while they think they have a deal. I mean, there's so many reasons that you need to interview multiple agents and look for those farmers because that's going to get you the right house more likely at what is the proper fair market value in that neighborhood, again, for both buyers and sellers. This is something you've heard me talk about ever since we first met each other, yes, right, Krista? Yes, and I completely agree. Having bought and sold several houses, absolutely. This question is from John in North Carolina about his real estate investments. Hi, Clark. I eagerly listen to every podcast. I have $1 million invested in real estate, two single-family homes. That generates me a net of $70,000 per year. Many advisors say to sell and invest in the market to draw out at 4% per year, but that wouldn't even equal the returns I'm getting with my homes, let alone in the end, I'm left with a huge asset. With the equities and bonds approach, I would have zero left when I'm 95. Am I missing something? You're missing nothing, John. We're talking about, though, two different things. In one case where you actively manage these two investment properties, you have to deal with repairing them. You have to deal with uh, recruiting tenants. You have to deal with a tenant maybe not paying rent, tenant who damages your place. Uh, you, you've got the whole thing. You're running a business. And if you're running an active business, then you should be able to out-earn 
what you could on passive investments. So they're not the same idea. If you're in stocks and bonds, you just can go online and see what you got. That's the sum total of work you have to do. Completely different. So it's not reasonable to compare the two because managing these houses is the equivalent of you working, having a job. The other is having the money you have managed to save, build future wealth for you and provide income for you that you don't do anything to or for. So you're not missing anything, but they are completely different. Okay. So do you have any, if he wants to have more passive income, would you maybe Well, I mean, he could do a compromise. He could sell one. How'd you know what was in my head? I'm sorry. Sell one, keep the other, and have the mix of the active investment of a house and the much more passive thing of just owning a portfolio of stocks and bonds that generate, hopefully, reliable stream of income for you over the years. Nicole in Maryland says, we have a cute house just outside of D.C. in a great neighborhood, but it's a little small, three bedrooms for five people. We have a relatively large lot with delayed maintenance, deteriorating retaining walls, and space for an addition, which would help solve some of the retaining wall issues. In our area, quotes are around $300,000 for an addition we have in mind, a two-car garage at basement level, no garage currently, plus a primary suite with full bath, laundry, and kitchenette above it, something we could rent out when we don't need the space ourselves, perhaps in seven to 10 years when the kids head to college. We currently could rent something like this out for around $2,000 per month. Our house is currently worth around $1.25 million, and we owe $450,000. Enormous amounts of equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have 27 of 30 years left at 2.75% fixed. Okay, you can't move. We have an untouched $500,000 HELOC available with an adjustable rate. We have current combined income around $300,000, but playing catch-up as one parent stayed home for 10 years. Based on the interest rate and prices of homes in the area, we can't afford to move. Does it make sense to do this addition? Not that we want to sell, but with the addition, we could likely sell or appraise for $1.65 million. All right. So first of all, why would you do the addition? Why would you in an era, if interest rates were not in the scenario you painted, you would pick up and you would move to a bigger house? The reason you do this, you created all the financial reasons why you feel like this would work out for you. But the main reason to do it is because you need more space to live in. And so you also create a more attractive home in the future that you should be able to recoup most of the cost of the addition you would do and the renovation you would do. And why did I say most of the cost? Because the cost of an addition per square foot is higher than the cost of actually building a structure, the entire home from ground up. So normally, even a very efficient addition or renovation, you're lucky if you got 90 cents back on the dollar. But in your case, considering the addition you would do, the value the house already has, it would be a good long-term decision because it gives you a place you can stay in and live in and enjoy more. You've got enormous equity. You have that first mortgage locked in at a very low rate. 
I think this is fine to do, but don't do it with the idea that, hey, we're going to add this addition and it's going to increase our return on investment on the home. That's not what it's going to do. It's going to improve your quality of life in that home and you will recover most of that value of what you do and you will have been able to hold on to that 2% plus mortgage. So that's why I do it. Just know that doing an addition like this is disruptive in your life. So just be prepared for that. John in California says, for the last couple of years, I've been getting used to using GPay, but last week I was in London and Paris and I was unable to use it. Every time I tried, I got declined. I used Capital One when traveling, but I tried my other cards as well and all were declined using GPay. I was only able to use my physical card and it had to be at the counter where there was a clerk. What is up with this? I thought using GPay was easy in Europe. So I've been to Europe twice recently and I've been to the my itinerary I've been to Italy, Germany, Poland and Czech Republic and GPay was hit or miss because I'm also I'm not iPhone, I'm Android and the GPay mysteriously would work and then it wouldn't work and then it worked and then it wouldn't work and I was having to do the same thing as you were doing pulling out the plastic because I had the ready backup I never did any digging to find out why I was having trouble intermittently and why you were continually having trouble using GPay. I have no idea. I should have been more curious, but because I was able to solve it by doing something else, I just don't know why GPay was not reliable. Now, our son did also in Czech and Poland have some trouble using Apple Pay because he's an iPhone user. And so I don't know why the tap to pay with iPhone and Android was not working reliably as we were traveling around. Maybe someone will be able to tell us who's from the banking business. Coming up ahead, it's so good to finally give some less frustrating news, actually good news, On the new car purchase front, I actually have it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, just be prepared. I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. Because we're going to talk buying new cars. First thing, the advice I've given about buying a new car, a used car, remains the same. If you don't need one and you're just tired of what you have, keep driving what you're tired of. Because new stats from AAA show that the average cost of owning a car now is over $1,000 a month. Over $1,000 a month. I mean, my goodness. Over $12,000 a year just going to owning and operating that vehicle that you drive. That's crazy numbers. And, you know, what you pay for an auto loan rates, higher because of interest rates. And the vehicles 
both new and used, went way up in price on the supply chain stuff. And now new vehicle stocks aren't near normal levels. There's this theoretical thing that a 60-day supply of vehicles from being completed at the factory to being on dealer lots, that having a theoretical selling rate supply of 60 days is normal. And we're really close to that now. Uh, some models are over 100 days supply now. Others are at the theoretical 60, uh, but the average is somewhere in the 50s. There are still some models, though, that are in extreme short supply, and they're hard to get. And those, the dealers, are still playing games with you on them. But the overall tone of the new vehicle market is much more favorable. Plus, the most recent data, the average selling price of a new vehicle has gone down recently by about $3,000. So that is progress. Certainly not back to where we were, but moving the right direction, which is why, again, if you don't need a vehicle right now, don't get a vehicle right now. But if you want one, or your old vehicle's just done, or sadly you were in an accident, your vehicle's totaled out, and you have to get a new vehicle, a lot of the tools I used to talk about before we got in this shortage three years ago are back in play. Shopping online for your vehicle makes a big difference. Also, using the car buying programs like the warehouse clubs offer and various organizations do, back in play using car buying services where you don't have to get in the grind. The grind is what the dealers do where they get you there, they try to keep you hungry, they keep you there hour after hour after hour after hour, and before you know it, you bought a vehicle on very bad terms, very bad price, very bad conditions, very bad loans. You want to be the home team. When you go to a dealership, you're the visiting team, and they do it every day, all day long. But when you or at your home or wherever, and you're shopping for vehicles online, you're comparing dealer to dealer, you're arranging your financing in advance. Absolutely critical. Always with a credit union. Always. This is not one, oh, maybe I should go to the bank and get an auto loan. Maybe you should also go run into a wall at, I don't know, how fast do you jog? 10 miles an hour, 15. I mean, that's the equivalent of financing a vehicle at a bank. It's like just, I'm voluntarily going to run into that wall. No, you finance at a credit union because bank vehicle loans are a bad deal. Dealer loans may or may not be a bad deal. If you arrange your financing in advance at a credit union, and you're there at the dealer and you're at the point where you're getting ready to pay and they say, why don't you finance with us? And you say, well, look what I got from the credit union. And if the dealer can beat that, fine. But if they can't, you know you're good for the money. But don't do what 80% of people do. They work so hard trying to maybe get a deal on a vehicle and they don't do anything about the financing and you're a sitting duck for whatever the dealer writes you that could be garbage. Be your own advocate. Be in charge. At Clark.com, I've got a guide to you, five steps 
to the right way to buy a new car. Takes more steps for used, but we have a used seven-step guide for used vehicles. But again, I don't want to encourage you, I don't want to encourage you to buy a new vehicle if your current one is working just fine, because there is some deflation, that means declining prices in the vehicle market, both new and used, but the trend hasn't played out yet. So the longer you can wait, the better off you're going to be. Krista? Plus, there's automatic depreciation of the car the second you get one, right? So the longer you wait. The longer you wait, the better you're going to be. The only time in my lifetime that that didn't play that way was during the extreme vehicle shortages during COVID, where people were able to sell used vehicles for more than they paid for them. That was just a freak show, likely not to be repeated. Okay, great. I thought this would be fun to read here. Greg in California sent in this story. About five years ago, my family was on holiday to San Diego, our original home, after moving to England for three years. We got stuck in San Diego for an undetermined time because of medical reasons. We were both renting vehicles for about $1,000 per month, which was killing me. So I bought a junky 2011 Kia Sedona for $4,000, planning on selling it when we returned to England. We ended up staying. The car was once stolen out of our gated community. My theory was the association hired someone because it was trashing up the place. (laughs) Fortunately, it was found on the last day before insurance kicked in. The point of my story is how much satisfaction I get every time I start my $800 per year car. My kids have me drop them off two blocks from school because they're embarrassed. I love honking at them when I pick them up, though. I plan on driving this car until it dies even though I can afford a newer car. Clark, you're the best. Okay, I love this. And uh, you remember the car I love so much. I bought a used Scion XB. Yes, the toaster. The toaster. And my oldest child, Rebecca, used to have me literally let her off out of sight of her classmates down the block from school because she didn't want to be seen in that vehicle. And what's so funny is all these years later, that original Scion XB is a cult car. Yeah. <laughs> and, they, and that is a vehicle that sells usually for more than what it originally cost new. Okay. Kelly in Iowa says, over the past few years, my wife and I have been stashing cash for upcoming expenses, new siding, replacing her 10-year-old car, extra emergency funds in case of a recession, etc. We've followed multiple recommendations from you. But that means we have cash in our regular checking account at our credit union. We have some at a high interest savings account at Wealthfront, and we have some in a Schwab account to use their debit card without foreign transaction fees while traveling, and some in a money market fund at Schwab. Please help us figure out how to simplify. How do you balance these different accounts? So first of all, in terms of complications, you name three accounts, Mm -hmm. right? I think so. Three providers, the credit union, Wealthfront, and Schwab. As things go in life for people that are managing money as wisely as you can, three may be a really solid number. I wouldn't feel bad about having accounts at three different financial institutions. Gives you more flexibility. I mean, you get past three. I've got six. You have six right now? Yeah. That's a lot to keep track of. It is a lot. (laughs) um, I, you know, my love for credit unions, and I uh, was a member of more than one credit union. 
and I closed a credit union account I'd had since 1990 recently. And I was consumed with the case of the guilt, but it just, it was just adding another complication in my life. So I get it with the complication. I would say three sounds really efficient because you're doing each for a specific benefit. So I think you're okay with what you got right now. This is from Cheryl in Massachusetts. Clark, what I really want to do is pay a fiduciary for two hours of their time to tell me which index funds or ETFs to choose within my Fidelity account to offer a set it and forget it diversified portfolio. I don't want to pay 1% or more for assets under management. And the two fiduciaries I spoke with want to charge me four to $5,000 for a full financial plan that I don't need. Target date funds have higher expense ratios, and I'm underwhelmed by their performance history. Should I sign up for Fidelity Go's robo-advisor? I want advice, but I don't want to pay more than $500 for it. Am I asking the impossible? Cheryl, I think it's fine to use the Fidelity Go. Uh, You can also sit down with someone at a Fidelity office who can help you with their modeling and come up with an ideal mix of index funds, Fidelity index funds, and ETFs for you. I think that's absolutely fine. You know, the real value and real power of using a fee-only financial advisor is much wider than picking this fund, that fund, or the other fund. That's why the robos have been so successful at that during the accumulation phases of life. As for your comment about the target retirement funds, you point out something that is a weakness at Fidelity. Fidelity has two types of target retirement funds. And if I I must mention again, target retirement funds should only ever be used inside a retirement account, like either type of IRA, you know, traditional or Roth, 401k, anything like that. Never in a regular investment account because target retirement funds are not managed in a way to limit taxation like an index fund or an ETF index-based thing would be. So Fidelity has a crummy target fund, target retirement fund, that has high costs. Then they have another that's a compilation of index funds that is low cost. And a lot of people who have Fidelity accounts, either in 401ks or IRAs, or in the bad target retirement fund with the high costs, you are the one who has to know and go look for the Fidelity index-based target funds that have very low costs. But in your overall thing, allowing Fidelity either with the robo or with a human assistance in a Fidelity office using robo, coming up with that mix of index funds ETFs for you is absolutely fine. The portfolio mix they'll come up with will be appropriate for your age, goals, and situation. And I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Remember, five days a week, we provide one-on-one advice, information, and guidance to you. It's a free service we've offered since 1993. And you can learn how to talk with a member of the Team Clark Consumer Action Center if you go to clark.com slash CAC. I say that again? Clark.com slash CAC. And what were we about here? For you to learn ways to save more 
spend less, and avoid getting ripped off. And have a great rest of your day.